Welcome to our uh, annual Chesterton Lecture. My name is Wayne Baxter, and I'm a member here at Temple Baptist Church, and so we want to welcome you. And I, I want to actually take this opportunity to specially recognize uh, one lady who's here, uh, Ms. Diana Zontag, if you please stand. She's the executive director of uh, the Dawn Center, the Cambridge Pregnancy Center. So we welcome you with your colleagues. Welcome. So if you've been here before for a CL, you know that it's basically we have uh, our, our speaker will speak, and then there'll be a short Q&A afterwards. And, uh, and then if somebody wants to, uh, I just remember the question I was going to ask. A little late. But uh, if uh, you have maybe questions after the Q&A, I'm sure uh, Laura will be around for a bit just to kind of chat. And if you, if something kind of struck a nerve and you'd like prayer, we have pastors here that you can pray with uh, as well. Uh, but before we continue, please, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for uh, bringing us together. Thank you, Lord, for uh, being able to bear witness corporately together of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and this opportunity that we can um, learn and be challenged and be equipped to um, serve and lead the way in this particular uh, area and issue and matter that uh, we will um, hear about tonight, an issue of life uh, for the unborn. And uh, we're just really grateful. We pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint our speaker as she speaks to us, uh, that you grant her uh, just tremendous uh, clarity and and uh, perspicuity in all that she is uh, doing this evening. We thank you for bringing her safely. We ask that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds, and, and uh, Lord, help us to um, understand what it is you'd have us to, to learn and to know and to apply, not just individually, but corporately. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the Chesterton Lecture? Great question, and I have an answer for you. Uh, the Chesterton Lecture is Temple Baptist Church's annual lecture given by a leading Christian scholar or practitioner. It's named after the early 20th century British philosopher, social critic, and Christian apologist Gilbert Keith Chesterton. Chesterton wrote 80 books, including Orthodoxy and The Everlasting Man, the latter of which led to the conversion of one C.S. Lewis. The Chesterton Lecture honors G.K. Chesterton's enduring legacy of intellectual and cultural engagement by inviting a Christian scholar or practitioner to lecture on a topic that intersects both Christian and non-Christian interests. This topic may be in the field of history, science, politics, theology, or general culture. Past speakers at the CL have included Andy Bannister from Ravi Zacharias Ministries, author Professor Steve West, and apologist Scott Stein. Tonight, we welcome Dr. Laura Lewis, and her talk is entitled, The Church and Abortion, How to Respond with the Compassion, Love, and Mercy of Christ. This evening, I have the honor to introduce this year's Chester Lecture speaker, Dr. Laura Lewis. Dr. Lewis graduated with an Honors Bachelor's of Commerce degree from Queen's University, followed by a medical degree from the University of Western Ontario, and a Certificate of Family Medicine from McMaster University. After working 22 years as a family physician, uh, Dr. Lewis saw the need for education, support, and practical options for women and men facing an unintended pregnancy. This awareness led her to leave her medical practice to serve as the executive director of the Canadian Association of Pregnancy Support Services, also known as CAPS. 
Uh, through the work of CAPS and like-minded organizations, she's dedicated to helping expand this important work across our nation. She's married to Len, and she has two children, Matthew and Thomas. Uh, so ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Laura Lewis. Thank you so much. There's been a lot of technology going on <laughs> preparing for this moment, so I am grateful for everyone who has helped me. And really, I'm so grateful to be here with you tonight. This is a topic that is so dear to me, and the longer I spend ministering in this work, the more I realize it is a conversation that really is needed in the church and just needed in our culture in general. And I don't know how many of you have been following the whirlwind of activity in the media lately. Uh, it was really a divine setup for tonight because I think we've all seen how toxic these conversations can become. And many people on social media have no idea that many of the messages they're projecting are actually very hurtful to the people reading them. And it's only a certain group that responds on social media, but there are so many others who are just in the shadows and hiding in, an, in their hurt and their pain. And really that is where the church has an opportunity to help make a safe place, create bridges of conversation, and to be a welcoming place for people to speak about their unintended pregnancy or about their abortion experience. So tonight, I'm not here as an apologist on the topic of abortion, but rather I like to think of myself as an Isaiah 61 ambassador. And I really just thought of that as I was preparing for this. I was a bit nervous about the scholar part of the invitation. And I thought, I'm not a scholar, and even though I've, I've studied a lot and I went to school for many, many years, this for me is really a, a spiritual uh, mandate, and I just feel like I want to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and that is my hope. So uh, I believe that these words are for all of us today. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon us because the Lord has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent us to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. For over 20 years, I worked as a family physician. I loved my work and counted it a great privilege to care for people from the very beginning of life until the very end of life. And three years ago, I left my medical practice to continue um, to commit myself full-time to the work of pregnancy care ministry. And as was mentioned, I now serve as the executive director of CAPS, the Canadian Association of Pregnancy Support Services. So we help to establish and support local pregnancy care centers like the Dawn Pre Pregnancy Center 
and we help to also provide resources um, to churches and also to be a national voice, a reluctant national voice, but at times there is a need to be able to speak up and um, convey a message of hope in some of these very toxic discussions. And so you may be here tonight with your own story of abortion, or perhaps your mother, or your sister, or your friend, your daughter has been impacted by such a decision. And as I speak, I, it's my hope that my words would not bring condemnation or a sense of judgment to any of you, but that they will be part of a work that seeks to bring hope and healing to many in the church and in society. As the church, we must seek to be people who speak with words that reflect the love, hope, and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so that's my goal tonight, that you would leave here with information but also with an understanding of how to respond well in love to one of the most toxic and divisive issues of our day. So let's talk a moment about value because what, much of what we do and say stems from what we believe has value. And so what does our culture say about value? Our culture no longer considers sex as an act that is reserved for marriage, or as a powerful act that can produce children. Our culture has lost sight of parenthood being the result of pregnancy, and that motherhood and fatherhood are honorable roles that need support. God intended sex, marriage, parenthood, pregnancy, all of them to be beautiful, good, pleasurable, purposeful, and ultimately a blessing to us. These were meant to bring glory to God. The delinking of marriage from sex, sex from pregnancy and pregnancy from motherhood and fatherhood has resulted in a cultural shift in the value and role of the family unit, and ultimately this can be traced to the lack of value for the unborn. So what do we value as individuals, as society, and who is the ultimate judge of value? God is, of course, and he has a lot to say about the value of each life. Scripture tells us that a human life is first conceived in the mind of God. Before there is any physical, anything physical, God has intentionally planned our personhood. We begin as spiritual beings and then are made with great care, respect, and wonder. This creative process of God not only speaks to how valuable each human life is, it also presents this truth that from the very beginning, we are known by God. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body all the days for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In the world today, the value of human life is not always welcomed nor celebrated. There are more than 50 million abortions annually worldwide. The trafficking of humans into sexual slavery or labor is rampant. The devaluation of the elderly, the poor, or the sick occurs. Violence over race or religion is taking many innocent lives. God has asked his people to take responsibility to advocate on behalf of devalued people. 
He expects us to stand for righteousness and justice. Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. All human life is valuable. It has been so since the beginning. The sacredness, sacredness, sorry, this is distracting me, the, the sacredness of human life is foundational to Christian culture. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the things he planned for us long ago. I could go on and on with the biblical basis for the um, sanctity of life. It is all through the Bible. It is all woven throughout there. And for people who may not know their own value, when they read the Word of God, it is written in there that even if you weren't planned by your parents or you weren't wanted, God wanted you right from the very beginning. And that's a message so many people need to hear. So for 22 years, I worked as a family physician, and for half of that time, I actually believed that abortion was a reasonable option. I haven't always been this way. I actually never really thought about abortion, even after completing my medical degree and learning all about the complex and miraculous details of fetal development. I never actually thought about what abortion was. I knew that at the very moment of conception, a unique DNA blueprint was established. The color of someone's eyes, the shape of their nose, how tall they would be, all of that determined at that very moment. But, um, and I knew about the embryology, that the heart starts to beat at three weeks. At a, 11 weeks, there are little fingerprints. I got all of it, but it was compartmentalized. And when it came to an unplanned pregnancy, we were really taught in medical school to focus on fixing the problem for the woman really in whatever manner she chose. And the, the issue of the sanctity of life was really a separate entity altogether. And it is strange how that sort of blindness and lack of understanding was very prevalent and still is sadly in the medical profession. When I was at business school, I went and heard Henry Morgenthaler speak. Some of the younger folks might not know who he is, but he was a family doctor who was instrumental in establishing abortion clinics across our country and was also instrumental in striking down the abortion law. And I heard him speak, and I remember I agreed with him. I thought women should have access to safe abortion. I saw picketers outside, and I thought, well, that's easy to be pro-life when you're 40 and you've already had your children. And I remember just supporting my friends who had abortions in university, often because maybe it wasn't the right timing, they had other plans that they wanted to do, or it wasn't the right partner. And I knew it was a hard decision, but I felt it was their decision, and I stood by them, and we never really talked about it again. I never brought it up, and they didn't either. As a physician, I referred dozens of women for abortions. There were days in my clinic when I would have couples struggling with infertility, talking about how hard it was, and then not long after, there'd be a young woman sitting there trying to sort out their unplanned, her unplanned pregnancy. And I didn't understand that this scared young woman was being influenced by many of the closest people in her life, all of whom had their own reasons for leading this young woman to choose abortion. 
And this was so well captured in an article published in the National Review entitled, When Abortion Suddenly Stopped Making Sense, by author Frederica Matthews Green. She states, when we expected, we expected that abortion would be rare, what we didn't realize was that once abortion becomes available, it becomes the most attractive option for everyone around the pregnant woman. If she has an abortion, it's like the pregnancy never existed. No one is inconvenienced. It doesn't cause trouble for the father of the baby or her boss or the person in charge of her college scholarship. It won't embarrass her mom or dad. About 10 years into my time as a family physician, I went on a medical mission trip with a colleague. I went as a respectful agnostic, never believing Christianity was anything more than a self-help program. And I returned deeply transformed. Obviously, it was it. You know, when I remember that moment and just how I thought, well, how could I never have believed that there was anything to this, the truth of the gospel, and now it is so important to me in everything that I do. My life was transformed. When I came back, though, it took several years after that that my heart broke for the unborn and for the many women hurt by abortion. And for me, this awareness began when I started noticing people with Down syndrome, their joy and beauty, and I began to doubt the role of prenatal testing and how it was used to destroy such a life. And it's of interest that the scientist who discovered that Down syndrome was caused by an extra 21st chromosome had hoped that the, the discovery would actually improve the care of affected individuals and not target them for death. And he spent the latter part of his career trying to defend the lives of those threatened by his research. Around the same time that I questioned the value and ethics of prenatal screening, a friend who'd been adopted at birth connected with me. She had found her birth mother and uh, was deeply troubled to hear about the lack of support and broken life that her birth mother had endured. And she wanted to make a difference, to make sure no other young woman would ever go through such a difficult journey alone and unsupported. And so together with a small group of people, we helped to establish a local pregnancy care center in our town. And it's been running for the last seven and a half years, and we've seen such an impact and need for such a center. And I'm so glad that you have a center here in, in Cambridge. It's a place where scared, confused young women and men can go to receive the emotional and practical support they need. A place where they can access hope so they would not be led by their fears. As a frontline caregiver, I was grateful to have a pregnancy care center in our town. Individuals were provided with a compassionate, life-affirming response to an unplanned pregnancy. They were given accurate information regarding their options adoption, abortion, parenting. They were given practical support, not just for the crisis, but afterwards as well, a place where even if they chose to abort, they would feel welcome to return, not because the staff at the center believed in abortion, but because they believed and cared about the woman and man and in their right to make their own pregnancy decision. And if one day the woman or man might feel the need to work through the grief of their abortion, they would feel that the center was a safe place to return to. 
once I became involved in this work, women began to tell me their stories, and uh, I suppose they began to trust me. And I was surprised and shocked by what I heard. One patient shared that when she was 14, she and her boyfriend became pregnant, and they had been living with her boyfriend's mother, and her boyfriend's mother forced her to have an abortion that she didn't want. And she said, I didn't know what to do. I felt like I had no choice. She went on to stay, say that she thought about her child every day and wondered what they would be like. I met her four years after this. I wondered why more patients never returned and shared their feelings about their abortion. And I realized that I never asked. It was almost like a silent pact was made. It's a tough decision, and we don't need to talk about it again. And I regret never asking. The impact of hearing these painful testimonies continues to break my heart. And the longer I'm involved in this work, the more stories I hear, and the more I realize the hiddenness of this tragedy, both the lack of awareness regarding abortion coercion and also the failure to recognize the hiddenness of post-abortion grief. This is a type of grief that differs from other grief. It's often referred to as a disenfranchised grief because it's not acknowledged. No one may ever have known about the pregnancy, and a woman or man may not feel permission to grieve, especially if it was their decision to have the abortion. I was speaking recently with a woman who said that it's taken her 40 years to put words to her abortion experience and what it was like afterwards. She described it as a tornado coming to blow one little candle out over and over again. <clears throat> abortion is the deliberate termination of a pregnancy, usually before the embryo or fetus is capable of independent life. In medical context, this procedure is called an induced abortion and is distinguished from a spontaneous abortion, which is a miscarriage or a stillbirth. One out of every five pregnancies ends in abortion in Canada, and 90% of abortions take place within the first trimester or the first 13 weeks. Canada has no abortion law. It's legal to abort a baby right up until birth. There's no legal protection for an unborn child until they've fully exited the birth canal. Many Canadians don't know that. The last abortion law was struck down in 1988, and Parliament was to actually determine when the rights of the fetus should kick in, and no one's wanted to touch that, and we just have a legal void. A 13-year-old girl can obtain an abortion without parental consent. Only Quebec has a minimum age of consent for a medical procedure, that's 14, but in the rest of Canada, medical consent is simply that the physician providing the care feels that you understand what you are consenting to. Extremely subjective. There are no rigorous informed consent protocols in place. It's extremely week. Approximately 100,000 abortions occur in Canada each year, and this is a low estimate because not all clinics report abortions. And now, with the abortion pill, um, it will change the landscape of abortion. So abortion, the abortion pill now is widely available. It's 
paid for by most provincial formularies. And uh, it is really driving this whole area of abortion access into more and more remote areas where, as a physician, I have great concern about even the safety for the mother. We know, obviously, it's not safe for the unborn child. In order to respond well to the issue of abortion and to respond with grace and mercy to those who have been affected by this, it's important that we take a step back and seek to understand why some women have abortions. And that's where I think it is very important um, to just pause because we can sometimes know the injustice. And it's not that we overlook things because we want to be merciful and compassionate, but um, you know, we all make mistakes and we all end up making decisions that maybe we regret. And uh, it's just important to have that heart of mercy towards one who might have chosen to have an, ab uh, an abortion. So acceptance is often a big one, and it's often the first thing that's offered to a young woman. Many women have said when they've gone to their physician, it's the first thing that's offered. Or their friends might say, oh, well, we can just take care of that. You can have an abortion. And if someone has low self-esteem or low self-worth, they may not believe that they can actually parent, and no one's telling them otherwise. <laughs> Many women have said when they've gone to the abortion clinic and the nurses sat with them and done what they would consider pre-abortion counseling, it's more about, well, how are you going to do this? How are you going to finish your schooling? How are you going to pay for this? And the fear just starts to rise up. And uh, women have said that maybe they would have made a different decision if only someone had encouraged them and believed in them. And that's what we often see at the pregnancy care centers, just these young women you just have to come alongside them and say, you can do this, and we're here. We'll walk alongside you. We'll do this with you. Fear. Sometimes the situation may not feel safe, the partner or just the situation in general. Uh, many women are pressured into having an abortion that they don't want. And the pressure can come, as I mentioned, from people that are closest to them. Maybe they would have expected the support to come from those people, their parents, their partner, uh, a medical professional, especially if there's a negative prenatal diagnosis. Often people are advised to have an abortion. And it's often, you know, it may be wrong or it may be a very minor thing. Shame, <clears throat> afraid being afraid of being judged by friends and family, peers, and society. And even though we're in a time of great sexual autonomy, uh, it's interesting to still hear that young women feel embarrassed that they are pregnant and out of wedlock. I've been surprised at that. One young woman, she was very promiscuous and wild and just sort of harsh. And she got pregnant. She didn't seem to care about talking about anything. I would be the one probably blushing. She couldn't see it. Um, but she got pregnant, and she was sobbing and sobbing, and when asked, like, what, is, what are the tears from? And it was that she was embarrassed that she would be pregnant and so young. Misinformation. Many women are unaware of the emotional and medical risks of abortion. And then feeling trapped and really believing that abortion is the easy way out. Many, you know, in our media and the culture, it's what's communicated. This is like the reverse button. You can erase things. You can get back to your life as normal. And we know that that's not true. 
maybe they want to, you know, they have their plans, they have their dreams, and they just feel trapped by this pregnancy, and they can't see beyond that feeling of being trapped. When women, um, when women, uh, we work, I live up in summer camp area, and one time I was asked to see this camp counselor who had had an abortion prior to coming up to work at the summer camp, and she came in and she told me that she'd been 17 weeks pregnant when she had the abortion, and she had it so that she could keep this job at a summer camp to be with her boyfriend. And I wasn't, I didn't have a relationship with her. I really couldn't say anything other than just make sure that physically she was okay. But I just thought, wow, like that, that was just tragic to me that she, that she felt just that she wanted to stay and keep this summer job. And I'm not trying to say that out of judgment, just I don't think she probably thought it through. So there are two very practical arms of our response as the church, um, how we respond to women and men who are challenged with an unintended pregnancy, and then the other arm is how do we respond to those who have experienced an abortion. So the next time you encounter someone challenged by an unintended pregnancy, uh, just consider your words and may they speak love and healing. And really as the church, it would be a place where we should be the place that people run to when they're in distress, where they know that they will be met with unconditional love of God. And so we are working to try to help people. We often hear from uh, people in the church or else, else, other places that they just don't really know how to respond. They don't know what to say. They're sort of caught off guard. And so they'll sometimes respond with a very somber reaction. Um, so we just wanted to give you this little acronym. So it spells life. So L is just listen. So when someone approaches you and says they're pregnant, just listen. Ask her how she feels about her pregnancy. Don't assume that you know. Is she coping well? Is she anxious? Just listen. We often say that we've got the two ears and the one mouth, and often we speak before we listen well. I is for identify, so identifying the circumstances. What are the circumstances that are making her feel pressured? And maybe somebody is pressuring her. Some common pressures are financial concerns, not feeling ready to parent, relationship instability, schooling and future plans. Identify her knowledge about her pregnancy options. Does she have a clear understanding about the alternatives available? Has she thought through the risks and benefits of each option? Adoption, abortion, parenting, because every option has a life-impacting consequence. And there is no reverse button. And then also in the identify, help her identify her values. Sometimes people try to react in a crisis and not think about what their heart is saying or what their values might be telling them. But long-term, we know that some of the greater emotional complications come when people sort of violate some of those value systems that they have. So it is important that they think about their own understanding and heart um, view of this topic, of this issue. F is follow-up. So just make sure that uh, she knows that you're there for her, that she's not alone. And I should be saying he and sh she, like it is both a young man and a young woman, or a man and a woman. We're not isolating just the woman, but often that is who we end up seeing in a crisis. 
And then encourage her, stay in touch, pray for her, celebrate her pregnancy. And that's where often in the churches now, we're seeing where churches will maybe hold a shower. Whereas before, it might have been something that was, um, I don't know what the right church description would be, but you know, maybe there was a mistake, but then how do you help them fall forward into something hopeful and good and wonderful? So you embrace people where they're at help them have a baby shower, let them know that they're not shunned, that they're still welcome, that they still have a place. I think that's very important. So this is just to prove that I'm sort of a scientist still. I thought I should put up this uh, study. And this is, um, it's hard to get good research on some of this stuff because they're you know, they're not concrete. It's hard to get a double-blinded, placebo-controlled study. Um, so this study is based on women who sought out help after an abortion at a pregnancy center. So as a scientist, I would say that is a biased population. So I'm not saying these statistics are for every woman who's had an abortion. These are about women who've sought help. But I think it's very telling to, to see... Um, what they said when they sought help, that 58.3% of the women said that they had an abortion to make others happy. 73.8% experienced some form of pressure from others to have an abortion. 28.4% aborted out of fear of losing their partner. And 66% said they knew in their hearts that they were making a mistake when they underwent the abortion. And this, to me, another area where I think it's very weak, uh, physicians are not, it's called a med an absolute contraindication. That means you absolutely should not do something medically. So giving anyone the abortion pill or providing an abortion to someone who's ambivalent or uncertain is considered an absolute medical contraindication. And so when I see things like that, I think, how did they know that she wasn't ambivalent? You know, if 60, over 60% or, you know, when they're saying that two-thirds of them knew that they were making a mistake, how are we really making sure that there isn't ambivalence? And I do think that this is an area that warrants more attention. And then 67% um, revealed that the abortion decision was one of the hardest decisions in their lives. And so that brings me to the second practical arm of response, which is the healing conversations. And so we already watched the video, but this video came out of a study that was done in the States, a thousand women who attended a church at the time of their abortion shared their feelings or perceptions about the church. And so three out of four women didn't think that they could, uh, that it, the pastor's teachings on forgiveness applied to abortion or terminated pregnancies. That's a lot. Over half of them did not know or believe that it was safe to talk with a pastor about abortion. And half of the churchgoers said that no one at the church knew that they terminated a pregnancy. So for many 
post-abortive women, the silence in the church on the topic of abortion is deafening. When it's not talked about, it's, the implication is that it's not okay to talk about it. In discussions with pastors in Canada, we often heard them say, you know, I don't really know how to approach this from the pulpit. Every time I talk about it, I can see people shutting down, and I know that I'm hurting some people, and they really weren't sure what to do. And so that's why at CAPS we developed this healing conversations. There's a little booklet some of you may have picked up, and also the video. And it's really just to help open the conversation and help to build a bridge. And it may not be um, a bridge that you know, the pastor themselves needs to um, fully deal with, but at least there's a, a welcoming of the discussion. And we ended up, a few of us went over to Japan in November, and we took healing conversations, and we went and taught in different places in Japan. We had this translated into Japanese. And it's just a message that really, I think, is, is valid around the world. This is happening in every country, and it is such an important thing. So when you are, if you are interacting with someone who's had an abortion, and some people say, well, I don't know how to start the conversation. And I will, would like to say that post-abortion grief is a, is a grief journey, and it's up to the woman whether she wants to be on that journey, right? We cannot force anyone. But we can sometimes say, you know what, I, maybe I heard this talk, I understand it can be difficult topic, and if you ever want to speak about it, I'm willing to talk to you. You know, you can say things like that, but it's never our role to force someone into a post-abortion grief journey. And some women really don't regret their abortion, and that's the other point I'd like to say. Um, and that's not our role to say you should regret it. Um, we're just wanting to make sure we're responding to the people who are struggling and helping women who are facing an unintended pregnancy. But for a woman to go from being uh, a woman who had an abortion to a, a mother who lost a child, that is a journey, and it will be her journey, and it will go as fast or as slow as uh, she will determine it to be. So if you are speaking to someone, um, let, just let her talk. And this could be for a man as well, but I'm speaking about women right now. Just let her tell her story, let her cry, let her go on rabbit trails, um, because you might be the first person that she's ever talked to. And sometimes when I've done, gone around and, and spoken at places, people will have said, they'll, talk, they'll tell us about their abortion experience, and sometimes they'll say, I've never talked about it before. And you just wonder how hard that's been to carry that. And so that's where for the pregnancy center, um, they are a safe place. And so I encourage anyone who's here, if there is a bit of a story or something they want to talk about, either afterwards we'll be around and, or after the fact, go and meet with them at the Dawn Center. It's important also just to have empathy. So regardless of your own views about abortion, um, you can genuinely acknowledge that this is a real burden and a heavy burden. And just, you know, Jesus is close to the brokenhearted, and he doesn't abandon us in our grief. And that's what we can do for others, too. We walk alongside them. 
educate yourself, awareness. So just be aware of post-abortion symptoms or stress and the type of grief. If you feel like you want to be involved in this type of work, it is good to, to learn a bit more. And there are resources that are online. Or again, I keep referring to the pregnancy center, but go and meet with them. And then refer. So not everyone is comfortable dealing with these things, and you don't have to be. You just have to be willing to listen and say, I hear your pain. This sounds very hard. And let me walk with you, and we'll find out what else is available for you in our community. And then just as with anything, when someone, you know, sometimes in a moment when you share something that's pretty vulnerable, it can feel a little uncomfortable. So if you, if you are in connection with someone and they, and they share a, a secret, something that's been hidden for years, then it's important to make sure you acknowledge them, that you stay in touch, you know, as much as they want. Don't follow them around. But uh, just make sure that if there's any awkwardness that they know that you're still for her and certainly pray for her because it can be a long journey. But it is a journey that is possible, the journey to healing. And for those of us that have had the privilege of, of hearing many testimonies of freedom, um, and for me, it's one of those things where, you know, this wasn't my journey, so I don't know it, but God has broken my heart for this. And I just believe that the most powerful ambassadors and champions of this whole transition into a new way of talking about abortion will be the post-abortive women and men that have gone through a healing journey and have found their voice and know that Christ's forgiveness is for all of these things. There is nothing that is too far from, from his reach and that he is for people, he's not angry, and that his love and compassion covers a multitude of sins. And I am so grateful that that's the God we serve. And I just pray that all of you will be such ambassadors as we leave here tonight.